we are very proud of not only our history, but also our philosophy, our way of thinking, a lot of which is depicted through our language, which I don't speak, but my sister does. And it's very difficult to go from English to Mohawk because it's so rich and complex. It's deeply metaphorical. Hello, and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Alicia Elliott, an established writer of nonfiction, about her debut novel, And Then She Fell. The story of Alice, a young Mohawk teenager who begins to hear malevolent voices and see things in her surroundings things others do not see and hear. She learns to suppress or numb these voices and images, but when, in her adulthood, she marries and gives birth to a daughter, those voices and images return. And after losing her own mother, Alice tries her hardest to keep herself together, to perform the new roles of wife and mother in a fog of grief and imposter syndrome. And then she fell as an exploration of dissonance of motherhood, racism, and inherited trauma, storytelling, and mental health. Alicia Elliott is a Mohawk writer and editor living in Brantford, Ontario, in Canada. She has written for The Globe and Mail, CBC, Hazlitt, and many others. She's had numerous essays nominated for National Magazine Awards, winning gold in 2017 and an honorable mention in 2020. Her short fiction was selected for Best American Short Stories in 2018, Best Canadian Stories 2018, and Journey Prize Stories 30. Alicia was chosen as the 2018 recipient of the RBC Taylor Emerging Writer Award. Her first book, a memoir, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, was a national bestseller in Canada. It was also nominated for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for Nonfiction and won the Forest of Reading Evergreen Award. Alicia, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. I want to start our conversation with the letter to readers that appears in the advanced reading copy of your novel. I don't know that the published editions will have that letter included, but I wanted to talk a little bit about what you reveal in that letter. You write that when you started university, you were an unmarried 18-year-old Indigenous mother and aspiring writer. And you write that the experience was alienating and awful and that it was hard to be both a mother and a writer. Will you unpack that a little bit, that experience for me? Tell me about your experiences when you first went to university. Well, I think that there was automatically, um, as soon as you have a child, you can no longer only focus on yourself. You automatically have to be focusing on um, the child as well as yourself. And so, um, because of that, I was like automatically not on the same page as most of the students, especially like the younger students, which primarily my classes were made up of. It was very, very, uh, much like I would be essentially, um, Every four hours, I would be back in my dorm room um, pumping breast milk to put into a little freezer to take home with me on the weekends for my son. And so when you have to, like, do that every four hours, you're not going to be able to go out and, like, hang out for long periods of time. You're not going to be able to 
um, you know, go out and get wasted or anything like that. And so like, it was just a totally different uh, maturity level, a totally different responsibility level. And and a totally different understanding of the world because most of my classmates were, you know, they were having fun. They were, um, you know, doing what young people do when they go to university, right? Um, so that was all very, very, like, fine. But because I was in such a different position and there were so few um, mature students, particularly students who were also mothers, um, it was sometimes like we were like there was like a deck two decades between us and so it was kind of like the things that i was experiencing the things that i was trying to deal with and also like the shame that was involved because there is this inherent kind of shamefulness in being a teenage mother um but also just the circumstances of my life where my son was being raised by essentially my mother-in-law at the time while we were at university during the week and I would literally drive home as soon as my classes were done on Friday and stay until as late as I could on Sunday to be home and so I knew that there would be a lot of judgment and so I tried to just generally keep to myself because I just didn't want to have to explain the situation I didn't want to have to feel like they were judging me as a parent and and all of these things so like it was very hard to hold all of those things um alongside especially so many writers who were, it seemed, focused on things that didn't concern me anymore. They weren't important to me. Um, the way that my life had unfolded, there was just so much more at stake for me. And so, like, the ways that they wrote and the ways that I wrote were were very different, I suppose. I'm wondering what... Why Why this genre? Why horror, and specifically psychological horror in the way that you've written it? Why you chose to use that as the lens through which to write the story? And I'm wondering, what about motherhood makes makes it so ripe for horror? So I guess I just started off because I was thinking a lot. Um, I started off moving the the story into horror territory because I was kind of thinking a lot about, you know, the kind of stuff that really got me into loving reading when I was a teenager. And a lot of that was like the books that I like read and devoured and couldn't get enough of and kept me up all night to finish were um, Anne Rice's uh, Vampire Chronicles. And so those were so formative, I think, for me um, as a person and as a writer. And I just was thinking, like, I feel like that's going to make this more interesting for me to work on instead of just keeping it as a straight literary fiction book. Um, and this was, that was, um, you know, when I realized that I wanted it to be horror, then it was like everything fell into place very quickly. And it made sense. Um, and that was when I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to have her not just be um, a mother struggling with her child, but also have her uh, be experiencing um, essentially like some form of postpartum psychosis. And um, from there, I think it was um, very easy to kind of insert those things because there is this long history in horror of using madness as a sort of um, gateway into horror, essentially. Um, and, and I would say even with psychological thrillers, you know, a lot of the a lot of the genre is about 
kind of using madness as almost a gotcha um, at the end. And it's like, this is like, look, oh my God, she's crazy. And that, and then that's the ending. And you, it, it doesn't really ask you to really reflect on what that actually means. In fact, it often it feels like a cheap way to basically say none of this mattered because she was all crazy and none of it really happened. And I knew I wanted to kind of explode that idea out a little bit. Um, uh, but I didn't realize how, how much I wanted to explode that out until I had experienced psychosis myself, um, coincidentally, as I was trying to figure out this book that happened to me. And, um, it wasn't postpartum, but it was, um, it was psychosis and mania and the kind of the experience I had, um, a lot of it was about in the aftermath as I was coming out of it, trying to figure out what any of that stuff did mean to me because uh, there was stuff that happened and there was stuff that didn't happen. And there were some things that I to, I will never be able to know what was real uh, to an objective observer of the situation because it's, there's things that just don't make sense um, through various ways. And, and so for me, I was kind of like, well, why should... The, the like and if if I'm really wanting to explore this experience, why should the reader be able to have that easy understanding of what was real and what wasn't when a person in psychosis is never going to have that easy understanding? And so I really wanted to kind of play with that. Um, uh, as for like the motherhood portion, I I just felt like there is this like way of experiencing e- even your body after having a child that is kind of in some ways akin to body horror pregnancy and, and and childbirth is such a violent act and i know we we like to think of it as a beautiful act but it there's there's a lot of inherent danger in that and there's you know there's blood there's pain there's screaming there's you know like all like all of the stuff that is trademark horror stuff but we're not you know we're not supposed to think of it like that and when you think about also you know the ways that in your life with a an infant you don't get a lot of sleep you're irritable things are like you know there's this droning monotony of the days and you feel out of touch with the rest of the world and everyone says you're boring because all you talk about is being a mom and you know all of this stuff right it it is very alienating in the way that I tend to, in a way that I tend to kind of associate with almost a gothic heroine being trapped in a castle, right? And so I thought that the blending of that was very, very natural. Um, And, you know, we have seen kind of like, uh, I would say horror adjacent, certainly for um, Night Bitch by by Rachel Yotter, but also more explicitly horror, uh, you know, the Babadook by Jennifer Kent. That film was like very much about the ways that the pressure of being a mother can can drive you to madness, can drive you to can drive your life to feeling like a horror movie. It all felt like it was very, like I said, very natural, and and it made sense to to do this. I guess. Yeah, I actually I, there was there's so many different ways to parse that answer, and I feel like it was a really full answer and your novel does a really, really successful job at blending reality and not reality or the different forms of reality of your story. Um, I'm wondering how that tension between what is real and what is not drives drives the novel forward, because that is the the kind of momentum or the um, progression into what ultimately is the the climax of the book or the end of the book, really. 
at a certain point, you know, like the way that I wrote it was not with an emphasis on really making it clear what was real to an outside observer and what wasn't. And so in terms of the things that she was experiencing that could be considered psychosis, I I, I really wasn't as concerned with, I suppose, um, making it clear and legible to to people because that wasn't my focus my focus wasn't on what was real and what wasn't in regards to her madness what i was kind of playing with was um the ways that uh you know polite canadian racism or you could say liberal racism or or things like that um is hidden in in or couched in this sort of politeness, this sort of lack of accountability where you can do something and it's and someone and someone who who is attuned to that sort of experience of racism and stuff like that can can see this clearly as a slight or as being rooted in some sort of racist assumption, even if it's not meant to be um, malignant or anything like that, that they can see that. Whereas there's always this plausible deniability that surrounds it where someone could question it and then tell you, are you sure, though, that that was really racism? Like, that, that I don't think so. Like, maybe that was just, like, she had good intentions or, you know, that was just a mistake or you're, you're misunderstanding and, and things like that. And that, to me, was the more tangible tension. And I felt like, you know, in some ways, creating that parallel between her her madness and this actual experience of racism that she was having in these ways, kind of, I thought, or what I was trying to do anyways, was to make it more apparent, make that connection more apparent so that you could, you could not only say, did Alice really hear that voice, but also did her neighbor really mean something racist or did it matter if she meant something and was it just racist anyway? Because it, when you're experiencing something like that, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. You experience it as though it's real. And so there is there is always going to be that sort of um, you can't stop yourself from being scared of it or you can't stop yourself from feeling a particular way if if you know a voice is telling you something that that feels like external to you but is telling you terrible things about yourself it's very difficult to fight that and so i really wanted to be within that embodied experience where at the end of the day it didn't matter if it happened or not because it still created those emotions those feelings that she held and carried you're listening to a conversation with alicia elliott I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Montana Book Company, located in downtown Helena since 1978, offering new books for all ages, vinyl records, and community activism. Delivery in Helena and shipping online at mtbookco.com. In the, in the book, um, and as her author, I should say, you've made writing Alice's salve to all of this this um this mania this psychosis writing is what is supposed to save her um the voices tell alice eventually quote write you need to write and keep writing that's how you'll fulfill your destiny and save your girl her little girl is dawn 
you know, after talking to you about about how this novel came to be, perhaps I already have my answer, but why does writing and this particular story that she's writing, which is the creation story, why does that become her way out? Why why does writing become her her savior in that way? It's funny because I don't think it was writing itself that was her savior because that wasn't, in some sense, she was trying to also fulfill this very particular idea of herself that had to do with her father, who was a storyteller and who had always wanted to um, to write uh, their people's stories and, and have it as something tangible to hold and pass on to the next generations um so that that wasn't lost um and so she kind of saw that as okay well i have to kind of fulfill my father's kind of dream in that sense and um so to me writing in and of itself was not the the savior or the salve for her but it was a rope out it gave her something other than her child and her husband and this this vision of herself in her home as um you know a, a housewife and a mother it gave her another way of looking at and experiencing the world that would remind her of what of the, that she was an individual and it was also a link like i said to her father and to her culture which she really needed kind of marooned in this very isolated house that she was in in Toronto. And so I think that it wasn't just the writing. It was also that connection to family, that reminder. I, I appreciate that answer because I that's actually that that moment where Alice uh, references her father and his storytelling is actually the passage that I'd like you to read. So if if you're comfortable with it, I'd love it if you read. Um, I think in in my advanced copy, it's on page ninety five. It begins on page ninety five. Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. It was my father who instilled in me a love of story. He instilled it in all of us. My cousins, Ma, and I knew when the stories were coming because we'd see Dad loading his soapstone pipe with tobacco. He'd sing softly as he pushed the browning leaves into the bowl. It was a ritual for him, one he made sure we knew the importance of before he started any story. We bring our minds together as one and give thanks to Sangwe Andiso for these stories. All of our stories are a gift from Sangwe Andiso, just like all of creation is his gift to us, he'd say as he lit the pipe. The stories help us as Angwe Homwe to learn about ourselves, the world around us, and our place in the world. We offer up this tobacco as a prayer in order to give thanks for these stories. Then he would puff on the pipe quietly. As he passed it to Ma to puff, we'd all squirm with anticipation for her to finish. And now, Dad started. And now our minds are one! We'd yell in unison. It was an adaptation of the Thanksgiving address, the words before all else. We were used to hearing Mohawk speakers recite the whole thing in our language at community meetings and events, but since we only knew English, we never understood it. Dad explained it to us, how those words reaffirmed our relationships with and responsibilities to the earth. 
by incorporating a mini modified version of the Thanksgiving address into our beloved storytelling sessions, he tried to make us invested in and proud of our culture. And it worked for a long time. I'd even start trying to write little stories of my own for my dad, which were derivative of how he told his stories, but which made him beam with pride as he read. Then, after dad died, I stopped writing completely. I focused on reading books from the nearby Caledonia Library, books that taught me Ongwe Homwe people were not worthy of written stories, books by authors who could imagine whole worlds where vampires, witches, and demons were real, where wizards fought dragons and lions could plot holy wars, but who couldn't imagine Native people existing as we were, as we still are. I didn't start writing again until after the Pocahontas incident. The idea that the spirit of a Native woman was trapped in that story for all of eternity haunted me. I couldn't stop thinking about Dad's unrealized dream to retire one day and finally write a book of our traditional stories in a way that kept them alive for the next generation. Them folks from the universities think they know everything about our culture, he complained to Ma one night when he thought I wasn't paying attention. They can suck it all up like a vacuum cleaner, claim they are doing us a favor and preserving it, then sell it back to us when we got desperate. It's not right. They don't own those stories. They belong to us and the next seven generations after us. Heck, they don't know how to tell our stories right anyway. Their voices sound like they've never been curious a day in their lives, like they know everything there ever was. I played those words in my head over and over heartbroken that dad would never get a chance to do what he always said he would. What if I could carry on his legacy, make sure that our people knew our real history, what we were actually like, our joys, our sorrows, our politics and complexities. I was convinced it was my duty to the next seven generations of Haudenosaunee girls to give them something to aspire to, besides the disnified lie that was Pocahontas. Thank you. Um, I want to I want to linger on on that last that last sentence. There are a number of references in the novel to pop cultural representations of indigenous characters. There's Disney's Pocahontas that you just mentioned, um, Johnny Depp's portrayal of Tonto and Disney's The Lone Ranger. I think I can certainly suppose or speculate, um, but I'm wondering if you can draw this out for listeners. What role do these references play in the book? And I'm wondering what your own relationship to these characters were growing up, and now especially as an adult, um, looking back at them. There's a funny thing that happens when uh, a group of people with some sort of identifying factor that makes them in some ways not acceptable to the mainstream, be that um, race, culture, language, um, gender identity, sexuality, all of these things. There's this thing that happens when there's this like gap in representation, which is that these people have seen all of these other experiences mirrored back to them and in that way somewhat legitimized by the media around them as being normal, as being, you know, like I kind of mentioned, worthy of being represented. And so um, when that happens, then every, every little breadcrumb that you're given takes on this entire, this huge significance. And so I remember back when Pocahontas came out, the animated film, and uh, 
all of like, you know, I want to say all of the native people that I knew were excited, you know, like uh, all of these little girls were excited. Oh my gosh, she's native. There's actually one character in all of media that we can point to and say, look, she's like us somehow. And when that happens, the, the, the sheer joy of finally having that validation in some ways can make it so that you excuse everything else. And so you don't really worry about that. And for people, indigenous people who were not part of um, uh, you know, the the real person who became known as um, Pocahontas, Matawaka, her people, her people's nation was the Powhatans. And so they knew this history and they were like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is, this isn't true. This is all a lie. And this is, and you're saying that this is historical and true. And so they understood it in a way that so many other indigenous nations didn't have that knowledge of. And so, you know, there, so then, um, and because we didn't have social media the way that we do now, that that whole voice was kind of isolated, that whole idea that maybe this wasn't the best and most accurate representation. Maybe this was doing damage and, and all of these things. Right. And so we didn't have that. I, I want to go back to the excerpt you read. We don't have a ton of time <laughs> left. I'm, I've kept you here so long and I thank you for your time. Um but I want to go back to the excerpt that you read. Alice's dad saying that academic voices sound like they've never been curious a day in their lives. I'm going to take this specific point in the novel and kind of broaden it for the purpose of my question or the, for the sake of the question. But I'm wondering what curiosity drives you and what you're currently curious about. And that maybe is just a different way of saying uh, what you're thinking about now and what you're writing about now. But you can kind of take that in any direction you want. Yeah. Um, right now I'm actually, uh, like thinking a lot about belief, what it means to believe something, what it means to hold something like that close and what that requires of someone. And I, I think that the most obvious way into that is through spirituality and thinking about, you know, what we believe or don't believe, um, in terms of spiritual things, but I also think that it's something that uh, really resonates just on every level. What are we willing to believe when it comes to, I mean, to be very topical when it comes to COVID information? What are we willing to believe when it comes to, um, you know, any sort anything that becomes politicized? What What are we willing to believe, and how do we how do we base that belief on? What would we base it on? Because I feel like in many ways there is this misconception that we are always all rational beings who are going to base our our beliefs on something that is uh, concrete, that is something that is scientific almost, that, it, that we can point to and say, this is a fact and this is why I believe that thing and something that I'm interested in right now is that, you know, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I, I think, in fact, that it's not true most of the time, that, in fact, we believe something because it speaks to a deeper part of ourself, and then we later try to use some, find some sort of fact or figure that then justifies that belief because we don't know ourselves enough to understand what it is that that belief is is 
so easy to root itself in, what it's rooting itself in. And so that, for me, is something that I'm very interested in. That was Alicia Elliott, author of And Then She Fell, out now from Dutton, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Look for more information about Alicia at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Jake also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided in part by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.